Good morning. For those who do not know me, my name is Tom Sylvia. I'm the associate pastor here. Uh, pastor John is the one that did the announcements, and normally our roles are reversed, and I'll do the announcements, and he is up here each week preaching. So I definitely want to encourage you, if you're new with us, to come back next week to once again hear our lead pastor for sure. Uh, <clears throat> One of the things here at Eshore we hold strongly to, John does so well, is expositional preaching. That is where we go through and we preach the text. What is the main point of the text? And that is what we preach. Here we happen to pick a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse, thought by thought, section by section doing this. And we've recently been in the book of Mark, and I'm going to continue that today. So if you have your Bible... Please turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, then there's a blue hardback Bible somewhere in the seat around you, and we'll be on page 1002 in that Bible. So that is Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. I'll be reading from the ESV. And if you will, stand with me as we read the Scriptures. Starting in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epitha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. You may be seated. Let me pray. Father, Thank you, Lord, that you have just given us your scriptures. Thank you that you have come and taken on the form of man and you have shown, you have revealed us, you have revealed yourself to us through your son and how you have just, through your son, shown so much compassion and love towards us. How you have displayed your works and throughout all of history throughout each and every one of us, and you're still displaying your works, Lord. We do not deserve this grace, but you give it to us. Lord, help us just to glean from your word what you would have us to learn. Help us to glorify you, praise your name, worship you, and exalt you to the ends of the earth. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, whenever I read this, whenever I first read this passage, whenever I was assigned the text, two words immediately stuck out to me, and they were the two verbs that describe the people of Decapolis when they came upon Jesus. The first thing they did is they begged, and then after they witnessed the miracle, they marveled. They were astonished. And if you've been in a Christian community for some time or grown up in the church, then you'll know that the, the church, we have sometimes our own little lingo, our own vocabulary. And if I was to say, 
Well, if a question was posed, what makes a good church member? We could say, oh, we want our church members to be Bereans. And if you've been in the church, you might know what I mean whenever I say, we want you to be a Berean. And if you haven't been, you probably are wondering, what is a Berean? What does that mean? Well, a Berean refers to the people who lived in the town of Berea in Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas were there teaching, uh, teaching the people in Berea, the Bereans. And as they were listening to Paul and Silas, they were searching the scriptures to make sure everything that Paul and Silas were saying were in accordance with the scriptures. And I definitely want you all to be Bereans, to not only take Pastor John or I's word, but you search the scriptures for, for what we say. So I say all that because I'm going to try and get a new thing going. I want us to, to be Decapolians. I doubt it's going to go far, <laughs> but I want us to be Decapolians today. I want us to see how they responded to Jesus and his works, and I want us to emulate them. So we're going to look at these words, these two words. In verse 32, the Decapolians brought Jesus, a deaf man with a speech impediment. What did they do? They begged God for him to be healed. They begged. Then in verse 37, After Jesus healed the man, their only option was to be astonished. They begged, and then they were astonished. That has been my prayer for us today leading up to this, as I want us to be astonished at the works of God and then begin to beg God to display more of His works. I'll repeat that. I want us to be astonished at the works of God and then for us to beg God to display His works. Here's how I want to accomplish this. This is what we're going to do. We're going to define each of these two words, and then we're going to look at them pertaining to how they apply to our salvation, to our lives, and to the world. But we're going to flip the order of these words. We're going to begin with astonishment, and then we'll come to beg in the second half of the sermon. Because when we rightly experience the works of God, we will inevitably beg Him for more. So... Let me read verse 37. They were astonished beyond measure. In writing this story, our author Mark, he did not think using the word astonished alone was enough to describe the response of the people. He had to add an adverb, which which are the English words beyond measure in the ESV, just to convey how amazed or how astonished these people were by what Jesus had just done. They were astonished beyond measure. Let me read to you the definition of the Greek word for astonished. To strike out, force out by a blow, but found only in the sense of knocking one out of his senses or self-possession. Translation, the Decapolians are at an utter loss of words or even how to respond at what just happened. They're in awe, total shock. The only reasonable response was to go and spread this news with an equal amount of zeal of astonishment. They shouted all throughout Decapolis, Jesus is here! Jesus is here! He has done all things well. All things well. (laughs) Zealously they did this. Have you ever been captivated by Christ in a similar fashion? 
When was the last time you were stricken in awe because of the power and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ that is taking place all around you? Have you ever been so overwhelmed with the power of Christ that you cannot help but be felt compelled to proclaim His name? Can you identify with the words of the prophet Jeremiah? Jeremiah 20, verse 9. If I say, I will not mention Him or speak any more of His name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jeremiah had to proclaim. He had to speak. George Schwinnock, his high, Jesus' high and matchless perfections call for a high and matchless praise. Perhaps if you answered no to these questions I just asked, it is because you need to spend some more time remembering His works. So with that, let us explore His works. Let us see the work of salvation. Let us see the work He's done in our lives and around the world and allow these works to bring you to astonishment. We'll begin with the first. Let us be astonished by His work of salvation. I mean, this one should speak for itself because we have a gospel that nobody can make up. It is a story of salvation that demands astonishment. We have God taking on flesh, the God-man, fully God, fully man. Understanding the theology behind how these two natures come together and do not mix does not diminish the mystery one bit. Let me read to you from George Swinock. Who could have imagined that God should become man, infinite become finite, the creator a creature, the father of spirits become flesh, and the Lord of life be put to death? Who could conceive that he who made all things of nothing should be made himself of a woman, made by him. That he whom the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain should be contained in the narrow womb of a woman. That the only bread of life should be hungry. The only water of life be thirsty. The only rest be weary. The only ease be pained. The only joy and consolation be sorrowful, exceedingly sorrowful, unto death. Who could imagine the highest exalted God being most humbled? The one who strikes the greatest terror in the wicked being the gentlest. The one whose voice thundered from Mount Horeb where the Israelites said, No more, no more, is now in the cry of a restless babe. How can you not be amazed by our Savior? who deserves words of adoration, glory, and praise, willingly subject himself to mocking and ridicule on our behalf, your behalf, my behalf. Are we not absolutely shocked that the King of the heaven, of all the heavenly hosts, at, with, at his very command, they are all eagerly and submissively going to obey, that this King... Instead of sending his servants to do his will, he has come to do his will, to comfort, to console each and every one of us. He stepped off the throne to become an incarnate man, to be God with us, to die and to resurrect again, to one day he's going to make his enemies his footstool and we will all reign with him. 
Who could create this story? Satan himself could not even concoct such a story. It's really interesting when you analyze pagan religions, you'll occasionally find different gods taking the form of a man, but never taking on their nature. And you often find whenever they do this, that they intentionally go and cause strife rather than ushering in peace. In those stories, you'll inevitably find that those so-called gods are never omnipotent, they're never omniscient, nor omnipresent, and they certainly have never become a sacrifice, nor humbling to the level of their creation. The stories are consistently inconsistent. (laughs) Why is this? Why is this? Because no man can create the gospel. (laughs) It's simply impossible. Only God and God alone can and would do this. In other religions, what do we have? We, do we have God seeking man? No, we have man seeking God. It is man trying to offer a sacrifice to, to work tirelessly or to try and obtain some type of blessing or some type of special kind of knowledge to appease or approach their God with a little g. And even then, those individuals have no certainty that they have their God's favor. However, our salvation, our glorious salvation, we did absolutely nothing to deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. We did not seek God. He sought us. In His grace upon grace, it was God that came down to us. And perhaps... The most mysterious words in all existence. God died. How did God die? I honestly do not know, but I know that he did. And he did so as our substitute. He paid the price, the cost of our sins. He bore the wrath of God so that whoever believes does not have to and can enter into a state of eternal life rather than a state of destruction. This is Jesus, the Son of God, died. But then He, the King of kings, rose again. This is our gospel. Does this not astonish you? This should astonish us every day. This is our God. Are you left in wonder of your salvation that God would save someone like you and me? Let us continue with being astonished by the work in, his, in your life. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Many of us are perhaps familiar with this verse, but are you aware that this verse is a present reality? That this verse isn't true in the future, it's true now. What do I mean by this? Well, the verse points to the future in that God is using all things in our lives for an ultimate good. That is the end picture where it's going. That is referring to our glorification. That's our future state in heaven where we'll be for all eternity. However, the process of getting to the state of glorification is called sanctification. And sanctification is happening right now in the life of all believers. That means... If you are in this room and you are a believer, then verse Romans 8.28 has already come true in your life and is proving itself true every day. Have you ever asked someone, 
this question, something similar like this. Uh, you can just, looking back on your life, tell me about your experiences. And they begin to tell you about their experiences. And then you go into the conversation, you follow it up. What would you change about your life? How would you change it? What regrets do you have? Now, inevitably, you're going to get like small little differences. But when you really press the question, most times, other than not, this statement's going to be made. I wouldn't change anything. Because if I, if I changed that, then I wouldn't be me. Those things made me who I am today. Speak to a parent who has a child out of wedlock, who has experienced a divorce, who has been abandoned. Ask that parent. I'm not trying to belittle the situation. I know it's difficult. Would you change? Oh, they're going to say some differences, but this statement's going to come out. Oh, but if that changes, then I wouldn't have my kids. Every time. Have you ever heard this before? Would you say this yourself? You know why that statement is said? It's because it's Romans 8.28. All your history, all your events, they might not all be good. They're absolutely sinful decisions all in your past. But you know what? All things are being worked for your good, our good. God has used all your past for your good. Romans 8.28 We have all made a lot of bad decisions in our lives, but we are grateful for the current outcome. God is working. I want to be clear. I must say it again. Not all things that are happening in our life are good. That's not what the verse says. It says it's working toward our good. C.S. Lewis Memory glorifies the original experience. In the hands of the memory, the experience is transfigured. Its true import unfurled and manifested. This truth that Lewis is pointing here to is belief that Romans 8.28 is true. When you do look back on your past, what do you do with that? What do you do with the emotions that spring up, the memories that you have? I talk to my brother probably once a week, and there's been many times in our conversations where we just begin to talk about our childhood or upbringing. We'll bring up a family story, you know, and, and we get caught up in some of these stories, and we kind of begin to laugh about some of these stories. Even whenever, I mean, I remember when my brother got brought home by the police, and, you know, we even laughed about that. Don't worry, it's not happened to me, you know, don't, don't worry. But we, we would laugh about that. And in the moment, we were terrified at what was happening. But whenever we look back, there's the question my brother and I, or the statement that we'll say is, man, we miss the good old days. Oh, they were wonderful. When you experience them, they were not the same feeling that you're looking back on. And that is because what you're looking back on is you are seeing the work of God in your life and you are glorifying His work and how He has redeemed many of your situations. They have been transformed, transfigured. Ecclesiastes 6.10 Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Okay. Our former days were not better. 
God has restored them. <sighs> Memories are heightened because hindsight is twenty twenty, and we can see what God has and how God has used us through them. God is working in your life. Do you believe it? Ephesians 2.10 we are, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Let us, let us continue on. We have our salvation. We have our individual lives. And we're going to come back to these with the word beg. But now let us look at the world. Let us be now be astonished by His work in the world. And I'm going to just go through different history of the church history of different saints and how they have worked all throughout history. Perhaps you have heard of some of these examples. Have you ever heard of sati? Sati is a practice in India where the wife would be burned alive when the husband died. This was practiced just 200 years ago. And it didn't matter the state of the wife. She was burned alive. It is appalling. It is disgusting. Why is the practice gone? The church. William Carey, the father of modern missions. He went to India, shared the gospel, and then he saw this, and you know what? He made it his aim to remove it. It was gone. <laughs> you ever heard of the Chinese practice foot binding? Once again, it's another horrific practice by the world where in China, whenever a girl was born, they would break her foot. And the goal was to get the foot to be no longer than four to six inches long. That is painful. A child in, in China, if she was a girl, she potentially could not walk the first five years of her life because her feet were constantly being broken. And many of them could not walk as they grew up into adulthood. That's where you got, when you're picturing this, you can see in the Chinese uh, women how they have these small pointy shoes. That's the foot-binding practice. And this was just banished around about 100 years ago-ish, 150. What happened? Why was, it, why was it abandoned? Why was it given up? The church, John McGowan, missionary Gladys Alliard, rallied the country to end the practice. Do you, did you know that there were practically no orphanages in Egypt just 100 years ago? If a family could not take care of a baby, that family would throw that baby into the Nile River. What happened that the Egyptian government began to fund orphanages? What took place? The church. The church. The great missionary Lillian Trasher just passed away in 1961. She saw the need to open up her orphanage in Egypt. And in her lifetime, she cared for over 10,000 widows and orphans, loving them, caring for them, teaching them the scriptures every day. Egypt was proud of Lillian. In fact, whenever you can, you can go back and you can look that people who lived in Egypt during her time, when, whenever they began to see her an orphanage expand, they began to name their girls Lillian and their boys Trasher. But as time happened, time went on, the government powers changed, and they were seeing all these children that nobody wanted to being brought to Lillian. And guess what was happening? <laughs> they were becoming believers. They were renouncing their Muslim faith. These abandoned children began to change the fabric of Egyptian society. They were being sent out to start churches. They were being sent out to start other orphanages in the surrounding villages. <laughs> and Egypt 
saw this, this new regime, and said, we can't do this. There is power in these orphanages, these children. And they began to set up orphanages all over Egypt as well. The church. Who were the defenders of the unborn in the first centuries in Rome where their law was have deformed infants killed? Abortion was rampant. Their stories were they would throw their unborn kids into the gorge. And there would be Christians hanging out in the gorges, rescuing the babies. There was Christians that were fighting to end abortion. They were paying people, don't get rid of this child, I'll take this child. It was Christians. The first hospital in Europe. Why was, why was it started? Christians, the church, to care for the unborn babies and the sick. We can keep going on about what the church has done throughout all of history. The church is a light, a salt of the earth. Can you imagine what would happen if the church didn't act? Now, that's the church. What happens when God himself intervenes? What does it look like when God comes down? And well, since revival is in the front and center of the news right now, let's speak to revivals. What is a revival? Martin Lloyd-Jones, he has a book on revival. Read it. He says, revival is a period of unusual blessing and activity in the life of the church. It is the days of heaven upon earth. A revival is not something that we do, but something that God does to us. In a revival, everyone is impacted. The immediate culture and all. The course of history is altered. Let me give you some revivals. The Welsh Revival of 1904 saw approximately 87,000 converts to Christianity. 87,000. That is something only God can do. 87,000 people went from death to life. When that many people commit to Christ, a country is getting changed. What happened in Wales? Well, prior to 1904, drunkenness was rampant. The the morality was at an all-time low. Let's look at after the revival in 1904. The criminal rate dropped by 46% after the revival. Bars closed down because they had no customers. Sports clubs, where gambling was taking place, were gone. And sexual immorality decreased dramatically. In fact, there were seasons during the revival that the police had nothing to do. So what did they do with their time? They went to the revivals to listen to these men preaching. The police had nothing to do. Tudor Jones, uh, just doing the research, there were no cases of drunkenness at the petty courts, at Wrexham, at the courts of Ryder, Abercarn, and Lansisol, I'm not not from Wales, had very little work to do. There was a great reduction in cases before the courts in Tregegar, Abertilly, and Rimney Valley. (laughs) People were changed. Consider the Great Awakening. That took place from 1720 to about 1750s. Prior to Great Awakening, England was an immoral mess. It was disgusting, England was, prior to the Great Awakening. Pastors were actually wondering if there was even hope for the England, for the English nation. In fact, the great Puritan John Owen, whom I love, he was seeing the decline of England in his own day in 1680. 
And he wrote a letter to a contemporary urging him to rally the people in the Church of England, the Puritans, to pray for a revival. Which was the first time this word revival was used by my boy John Owen. But England's immorality steadily declined. And in 1713, England signed the Asiento contract with Spain. Which, what is that contract? Well, that allowed England to boast, and they were boasting, to, about being the world's leading supplier of slaves. <laughs> However, within the next century, England was now at the forefront of fighting to dissolve the slave trade. What happened? The revival, the great awakening happened. God worked in the lives of men such as George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Daniel Rowland, Jonathan Edwards, and they left the world astonished. You cannot look at the history of England without seeing the impact of revival. <laughs> Let me give you one more before I move on. You received a printout. I gave you a printout today, and... In this printout, it contains the news article written about 50 years ago in Saskatoon, Canada. And it speaks to the revival that took place in Saskatoon, Canada. And just read the article. They just keep listing one after another of all the things of how the people are being changed. Men going back to stores to pay for things that were robbed earlier. <laughs> people confessing to stealing. I don't know what I mean. It's just one thing after another, and they don't even list it all. They can't explain it. The people are changed. Culture is impacted when God acts. The world, whether believer or unbeliever, is left astonished. Do you think that America is in such a moral declension that there is practically no hope? Well, you can think again. There is nothing new under the sun. If it be God's will, He will reveal His wonders to our nation, and overnight, America will be changed. Is Russia a lost cause? Not for the mighty works of our God. God has faithfully worked throughout all of history and has changed the course of history more times than we can comprehend. When we look back at history, we should be astonished with the works of God. You want more? Then I'm going to encourage you to read missionary biographies. I'm going to encourage you to read church history. Because when you read about the church, you're reading how God has used His bride. And you can rejoice. We can see that the Decapoleans were right to be astonished by the works of Jesus. But there's another verb that characterizes their actions. And let's transition to it. It is, they begged. Astonished, and now they begged. They begged Jesus to display the works of God. Why did they beg? Because they knew Jesus' power. How did they know his power? Because there was another, another citizen of Decapolis that was astonished by the works of God and had the same response as these people. Do you remember him in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus healed the man with a demon? His demon possession was so great, the chains, he would just rip the chains apart. Everybody was afraid of him. Nothing can hold this demon down. Well, our Lord could. Our Lord healed the man. And the man wanted to follow Jesus. Lord, I'm here to follow you. And Jesus said, no, go tell the people in Decapolis. Let me read it. 
Mark chapter 5, 18 through 20. And as he was getting into the boat, it's Jesus getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I think it's safe to say that this man accomplished his God-given task. Because when Jesus came to the region, we're, we're back in the region in our chapter, the people knew exactly what to do. <laughs> they begged. What is the Greek word for beg here in this passage? Well, it means exact, exactly that, to beg, to plead. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones, we are to take no rest ourselves. We are to give God no rest until he has heard us, until he has answered us. Bombard God, bombard heaven until the answer comes. How many of us have begged God to act? Is it perhaps... One reason we don't beg is because we have not studied His works enough. Because we have this example in Scripture, Luke chapter 18, the parable of the persistent widow. This woman is being unjustly treated. And she goes to the, the judge, Lord, bring me relief from my oppressor. The judge says no. Next day, the woman comes back, Lord, bring me reprieve from my oppressor. The judge says no. She comes back again. No, again, no, again, no, again. Oh, fine, I'll do it. Just stop bothering me. <laughs> That's the parable. Now, unlike this unjust judge, we have a father who wants to be bothered. In the same manner, the, the unjust judge relented at this widow's request. How much more will our loving father give to those who cry out day and night, to those who beg him. Do you remember the story of Jacob wrestling the angel of the Lord? When you read about the angel of the Lord, you need to understand that that's Jesus. That's the pre-incarnate Christ. Jacob is wrestling with Jesus. Well, what happens? This wrestling takes place in the night and it goes till dawn. That's a long time. Genesis 32, 26. This is what Jacob says. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob begged. He begged. Do you remember the Ninevites in the book of Jonah? Jonah told the Ninevites that God was coming to destroy the city of Nineveh. But what happened with the people? Jonah 3.8. This is the, 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 the king's decree. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. They begged. The whole city begged and God relented oh. as with the word astonished let's look at how begging relates to our salvation our lives and to the world begging in relation to our salvation if you are here and you are not a believer then I'm going to beg you to beg God to save you Repent of your sins and turn to God. Depend on Him and Him alone, for only He can save you. Beg Him to give you new life, to be born again, to be made new. If you beg for salvation, then you will have it. 
There will be no one in hell who wanted heaven. Do you have a friend or a family member who does not know the Lord? Then I'm going to ask you to beg God for their salvation. Beg them. He can do it. Begging in relation to our lives. What do you need to beg God for? Just like Jacob, he begged God for more of God. Are we begging God for more of His glory? That's what Moses did. Beg Him to give you more of His presence, more wisdom, more love, more devotion. Moses wanted to, God, reveal your glory to me. Please, it says please multiple times in that section. He begged God and God gave him his back parts. How about your marriage? How's it doing? Beg God to make it greater. Beg God, say, Lord, fill my marriage with more love. Display in our lives this glorious union to the world and to each other. Are you battling sin? Are you begging God to deliver you from the sin? Lord, help me. I'm in the depths. Hear my cry. Please save me. Beg Him to give you the strength of the power of the Spirit because it is only through the Spirit that you can cut that sin to its roots. Beg God to fulfill His promises towards you. Beg Him for more of Romans 8.28 to be fulfilled in your life. John Owen, a strong desire, begging, is the lifeblood of praying without ceasing. A strong desire sets faith and hope to work, drives the soul in following hard after the Lord. Get your heart into a strong longing, begging, and panting attitude. Beg them, long for, and cry out for righteousness. Beg God to use you. Habakkuk 3.2 O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What is, mercy. What is Habakkuk saying? Lord, I've experienced your works in the past. Do it again. Beg God. He wants to work through you. Begging in relation to the world. I listed example I listed a couple of examples of how God has used the church to change the world, and I gave you just some examples of revival where, where God, the Holy Spirit, comes down and changes everything. And I'll tell you now that unless there is begging, God will not act in a way of revival. Unless the same spirit of Isaiah is in us, God will not come upon us in such a manner. Uh, we already read it. Let's read it again. Isaiah 64, 1 through 4. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Rend the heavens. Tear the heavens down and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. He's begging God. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, you rend the heavens, and the mountains quaked at your presence. Come quickly, fiercely, Lord, with swift justice, display your works among the nations so that the world may know you are God. 
Isaiah is desperate for God to intervene because he knows that only God can restore the fortunes of the land among his people Israel. He knows that the world, <clears throat> excuse me, he knows that in a moment, all the years the locusts have eaten, God can restore like that. We are a people saved by the blood of Christ. And we are a people that have experienced revival in each of our own lives. This means we are not a people who sit around and talk about moral decay or the decline of society and conclude that society is doomed. We are far from that. We are a people who strengthens our feeble knees and beg God to intervene. Then we wait and expect great things from God. Bill McLeod, who is this guy? Well, he is the man that God used to start off the Saskatoon revival in Canada at Ebenezer Baptist Church. He prayed for 10 years for revival. He begged God to act, and God answered. Jonathan Edwards, the one who's preached a sermon called The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he begged God for years before the Great Awakening for God to come for revival. Lillian Trasher, the orphanage I spoke to you about in Egypt, she prayed for her kids every day. She prayed for their provisions, for their food, their water, their clothes, everything she prayed for. And her kids knew her as the mama who prayed and who has a God who answers. And every night she prayed for their salvation. To when one night they came and they all gathered in their courtyard and they began to pray, all of them. And the kids, they were doing what they had been taught by Lillian, mama. Praying, and then they prayed into the middle of the night. 2 a.m. came, and all of a sudden, a kid stands up. I believe. Another kid stands up. I believe. That night, over 150 kids committed to Christ, and that prayer lasted for over a week, and they continued to beg God for more. The church begs for God, and God will answer. He wants His glory to be made known throughout all the earth. And when God comes, the earth knows it. Read church history so you can be astonished at what God has done and can do. That's not history. That's not something that's only once. It can be now. I challenge you to spend time with your spouse, family, or friends to discuss the works of God displayed in your life. So that you can be astonished at what God has done in you and in other people and begin to, well, to grow more and to beg Him for more. I beg you who do not believe, believe. Believe. Beg God to display His work of salvation in your life. And then you will have a life of awe and you will then be begging God for more. God is working. Do you see the works? Do you study and meditate on the works of God and are you left astonished? Don't answer that with a yes or a no, but answer that with your actions. Allow the actions to determine the answer. Are you begging him to display more of his works? Follow in the example of the Decapoleans, for we must be astonished with the works of God and then we will begin to beg him to display more of his works. Let me pray. Father, we need you. Father, we know that what we were saved from, we were saved from our sin. We were saved from our depravity. We were utterly hopeless. But you came.
came down and saved us. Lord, in the same way we are utterly hopeless in every realm and we can only work through you and we only desire to be used through you. We are your people. Lord, we beg you to use us, to teach us more of your works, display your glory through each and every one of us. Help us, Lord. Amen.